Well, welcome once again uh, to Rockbridge Community Church. We are fired up, excited that you are here as we kick off a brand new sermon series this weekend at all of our campuses and all our locations. Before we get to that, I just want to remind you, uh, especially for our Rockbridgers, about First Wednesday coming up this Wednesday at 6.30 p.m. at all of our campuses across northwest Georgia and in Hickson, our Tennessee Valley. So this is a fantastic time. If you need prayer, uh, if you're ready to observe the Lord's Supper together, this is our, our service. We have our elders available to pray for you for whatever reason uh, in, in obedience to uh, James chapter 5. So I definitely encourage you for that. Let me speak to all the Rock Bridgers. This is, if you consider this your church, we need participation in this service because this is when we together ask for God to move in our midst. It's, it's the most strategic thing we can do is pray and ask God to move in our communities, in our families, in our marriages, in our lives for His glory. So we start this series today called I Believe in God, But, and you have actually built this series and given us topics and questions that you have. Hey, I believe in God, Matt, or I believe in God, but, and so we're going to answer those. And in the context of, every, of most of our sermons, you can text in, and I will try, if we get to it, to answer your text during the sermon. It'll be toward the end, so you can text, and somebody's going to filter those and send them to me to my phone, and, and I'll try to do my best to answer your questions. And you can text 706-671-2171 to something related to the topic today. If I do not get to your question, I will be on Facebook Live on Tuesday afternoon at 1.30, and if you can't log in then, that's fine. You can still send your question in. You can watch it. It'll be on our Facebook uh, for, for a while. So you can watch the answers to different questions that people have that have been stimulated by this thing called, I believe in God, but. All right. So if there was a Pew, there was a Pew Research poll that went out to uh, all over America this year, actually in 2018. And the most agreed upon attribute of God was that God was all loving. Even like atheist people, if they did believe in God, they would sort of say, well, if there were a God, I believe he should be, or he ought to be, or he would be loving, right? And that's just kind of the most agreed upon attribute that people believe. They believe God would be all loving more than he would be all knowing, more than he would be all powerful. This wins. It wins among people who believe in the God of the Bible. It wins among, among people who believe there is a God or a higher power, not necessarily the God of the Bible. And, it's, and it wins among people who say there even isn't a God or who don't even know if there's a God. Because if, if there is a God, we just think he should be all loving. Now, here's the challenge to that. Despite the fact that most of us would say, yeah, I think God's all loving, when the number one thing that people responded to and we said, hey, fill in this blank, I believe in God, but was this. I believe in God, but I'm not worthy of his love. So while we say God is or should be all loving, we are not sure we're worthy of his love. Another one came in and says, well, why is it so hard for me to believe that he actually does love me? And, and continue on, it says, well, why am I worthy? And then for, for those of you familiar with this language, you'll appreciate this. I'm saved or I'm going to heaven or I have eternal life, whatever that means. But am I doing enough? I, it doesn't feel like I'm doing enough, which comes back to am I worthy of his love? And so it's interesting that we have this tension in our spirit, in our minds, that, yeah, God's all loving, and yet I'm really not sure I'm doing enough, or I'm not sure I'm even worthy of his love. And so how do we reconcile those things? 
Hey, God's love, God is love, and, and love wins, and choose love, not hate. And we've all heard that. We all believe that. Yet when we really get down to what questions we have, or I believe in God, but we, we're like, I'm not sure I'm a candidate. Or I'm not sure I've done enough to do something. I'm not sure I've done enough for God to, to love me. And so how do we reconcile those problems? And, and really, here's what we need to understand. When most of us think of love, at somewhere in that definition or in somewhere in our experience of love, if you will, we believe deep down that love is supposed to be deserved. That you are more loving or less loving based on if you do certain things or don't do certain things. Most people tend to believe that about God, that God's love has to be deserved, that we have to do something to earn it, to merit it, to deserve it. Most of us believe that about life because the love that most of us receive from imperfect people, whether that's our parents or our good friends, is conditional love. Hey, I love you so much, then they're gone in the morning. Hey, I love you till death do you part, and the marriage lasted two years, three days. Hey, I love you, I'll le never let you down, and they never return the phone call. Uh, hey, I love you, and, and, and but I love you if. And so most of us learn somehow that love is conditional, or, or love needs to be merited or deserved. So, so do this for yourself in your mind. Complete the blank. God loves me because... Or God does not love me because. Now, now here's, the, here's the thing. I, I think the answers to those questions are, are very similar because here's what I think. If you sit here and say, God loves me because, you're say, you might be saying, because I'm a good person, because I haven't done bad things, because I've read my Bible, because I haven't killed anybody. So God loves me because of I've done something that's made me worthy of his love, because I went through confirmation when I was 12, because I got baptized. Conversely, if you're saying God does not love me, it's because of what I did in my first marriage, or it's because of what I'm doing uh, right now that nobody knows about, or it's because I, I've done something really bad and I have all this guilt and all this regret and, and all this shame. Both answers are still in the category of I have, I have personally done something to deserve to be loved, or I have personally done something to deserve not to be loved. And, and so what we do is we sort of play with God a game of he loves me, he loves me not, right? I read my Bible, he loves me. Oh, spring break, he doesn't love me, right? I mean, and so we just play this game with God. He loves me because I came to church three weeks in a row even my first marriage. I mean, and we just play this, he loves me, he loves me not game. And, and, and so, is it any wonder that we wonder about God's love for us? And is it any wonder that we have this sense of, oh, yeah, God's all loving, but I'm not sure I'm that worthy of it? Or, in, in, in a moment of self-righteousness, we can say, yeah, I deserve God's love. I've been baptized. You know, or whatever the case may be. And deep down, though, we all have this fear. And it's a love-based fear. And it's this fear of rejection. Because are, aren't your deepest wounds, don't they fit in the category of you've rejected yourself or someone rejected you, so you rejected yourself? And, and some of you, listen, 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 listen. The church has been an agent of that for some of you. 
The, the church has given you that big R, reject. And, and so it's hard not to look at God and say, is he going to reject me? Or it's hard not to look at God and say, have I done something to deserve your love? Uh, actually, a Catholic priest writes about this concept, Henry Nouwen, and he says this. He says, over the years, I've come to realize that the greatest trap in our life is not success, popularity, or power, but self-rejection. Success, popularity, and power can indeed present a great temptation, but their seductive quality often comes from the way they are a part of the much larger temptation to self-rejection. When we have come to believe in the voices that call us worthless and unlovable, then success, popularity, and power are easily perceived as attractive solutions. So I don't feel worthy, so to be worthy, I will pursue success in my field or in my faith or, or my religious system, or I will pursue popularity on Facebook or with other people, or I will pursue power, and those will cover up and make me less likely to feel worthless and unlovable. But we're still talking about love in the context of do you deserve it or do you not? He says, the real trap, however, is self-rejection. As soon as someone accuses me or criticizes me, or we could say, or as soon as I'm rejected, there's our word, left alone or abandoned, I find myself thinking, well, that proves once again that I'm a nobody. And my dark side says I am no good. I deserve to be pushed aside, forgotten, rejected, and abandoned because he loves me not. And that's the challenge that we have. So into that... I have a prayer for you, for me, for us, that you would walk out of here with some certainty about love. Because isn't it scary, love? Because there's such uncertainty. The divorce rate proves it. The orphan crisis proves it. And even how some of us view God, it's like, I'm just not sure he loves me. But what if we could achieve some level of certainty today? If you have a Bible, I'd love for you to turn it on, open it up. We're going to be in a very, very familiar passage of Scripture. You've probably seen this on Tim Tebow's Eye Black or at a football or baseball game from John chapter 3. New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. There was a man from the Pharisees, so that's a religious person who would be deemed very good by the people or by the culture he lived in, named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. So he has position or he has power. Uh, he's a Pharisee. He's a good person. This man came to him, Jesus, at night. In John's gospel, the theme of dark and light, night and day, is very prominent. Jesus, as the light of the world, steps into the darkness. So John uses night and dark very symbolically, very metaphorically. And he says, Rabbi, this is how he views Jesus. That means teacher. He says, teacher, we know that you are a teacher who has come from God. So a lot of people, atheists, agnostics, Christians, non-Christians, hey, Jesus is just a good person. He taught some good things. So that's how he sees Jesus. He says, for no one could perform the signs you do unless God were with him. And so Jesus replies, and now you've got to put yourself in Nicodemus' shoes. Jesus is going to blow his mind. It's like Jesus is going to give him a physics problem that he can't understand. And it's really weird that he does it, but it'll make sense later on. So he says to Nicodemus, truly I tell you, unless someone is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God, or he cannot have eternal life, or he cannot be saved, or he cannot be a Christian. However you want to say that, that's what Jesus is saying. So unless someone is born again, he can't see the kingdom of God. And well, what does that mean? So Nicodemus goes, well, how can anyone be born when he's old? 
He's thinking biological birth, earthly father, earthly mother. So Nicodemus, Nicodemus asked him, can he enter his mother's womb a second time and be born? And so Jesus answered, he said, truly I tell you, unless someone is born of water and of the spirit or born of flesh or human means and of God, so it's got to be something God causes, God initiates, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. So to be born again or to get into heaven or to have eternal life, something has to happen to you. You can't cause it. You can't create it. You can't bring it about. It has to happen by the Spirit of God, he says. So Nicodemus is confused. He said, this is like physics or math class or whatever. He says, how can these things be, asked Nicodemus. And so Jesus says, are you a teacher of Israel and don't know these things? Jesus replies. All you need to know at this point, because that phrase, born again, you could preach sermon after sermon after sermon at this phrase, and and if you're you're new to church or you're new to Christianity and you've heard people talk about born again, I'm not sure what that means. Guess what? At this point in John's gospel, Nicodemus has no idea either, all right? So it's not a big deal. So the bottom line thing you need to hear is this lesson that Nicodemus is getting from Jesus. And here's the first thing Jesus is trying to get Nicodemus to understand. He says, your religion, you're a Pharisee, your effort, your energy, and your good is not good enough. That's that's all he's really trying to say to Nicodemus. He says, look, hey, you're a religious person, you're a ruler of the Jews, society, culture, your mom and dad would say, hey, he's a good kid, he's he's become a good adult. He said, none of that's good enough. Because something has to happen to you that you can't cause uh, in and of yourself. Something has to happen to you that's not a religious system. Something that has to happen to you that gets outside the bond, the boundaries of respectable goodness. Now, what's he doing? Now, remember what we said, love has to be deserved. So Nicodemus would say, well, God loves me. I'm a Pharisee. God loves me. I'm a ruler of the Jews. God loves me. I'm a respectable person. God loves me. I keep all the rules. So Nicodemus is sitting here. God loves me because I have religion, because I am good, because I expend effort at being a religious person. And Jesus is saying, well, that's not good enough. So Nicodemus's definition of love or Nicodemus's definition of God's even is kind of getting robbed. And, and I, that's where we need to be right now. So you cannot define a relationship with God based upon your fidelity to religious rituals. You cannot define your relationship to God based on your effort to be a good person or to reach Him. You cannot define your relationship to God based on your definition of good. Because, you know, let me just give you a hint. Nowhere in the Bible or in any other religious system in the world does it really define how good is good enough. Does God grade on the curve and Mother Teresa blew it for us all? What, hey, I'm 69, I'm 70, I'm 80 years old, and I'm just now trying to be good. Maybe I'm out of time. Never are we told how good is good enough. But Jesus does tell us, whatever our good is, is not good enough. And then, so into that tension, so now all he's trying to say is, you can't think of your relationship with God in terms of what you deserve or what you think you deserve. You cannot do that. So for the self-righteous person who says God loves me, 
because I've done good things or because I've, I've been in church all my life or because I know the catechism or I've been to confirmation or I've been baptized two or three times or I've prayed the sinner's prayer until I'm blue in the face. Jesus is like, that's not it. So for the self-righteous person, your definition of love has just blown up. For the person over here who's like, well, God does not love me because... I'm not good, and I've done some shameful things, and I'm embarrassed, and he loves me not. He loves me not. He loves me not. Jesus has blown your definition of love up, too. He's blown your definition or understanding of how God wants to relate to you, too. So, okay, if if love is not something that we deserve, which is our love problem, we said that in the beginning, what do we do then? And now Jesus is going to drive that home. So he says back to Nicodemus in verse 12, he says, If I have told you about earthly things and you don't believe, how will you believe if I tell you about heavenly things? So basically, Jesus is saying, you kind of got to get your eyes off the the earthly stuff. You kind of got to get your eyes off things of the world and and your common understanding of how this whole thing with you and me and you and God or you and love works. And then he points him to someplace else. And this is where we need to go right now. We need to point ourselves somewhere else. Instead of looking at ourselves in the mirror and saying, well, God loves me because I'm good. God doesn't love me because of what I said to her. Uh, God loves me because I I prayed this morning. God does not love me because of the gesture I gave the person who cut me off in traffic. And whatever. (laughs) Instead of doing all that, Jesus now points us past that. And he says, okay. No one has ascended into heaven except the one who descended from heaven. And Jesus, in the third person, gives his favorite title for himself. He says, except the Son of Man. So he says, instead of looking at human, you and me, let's look at the God-man, Christ. So, second lesson that Nicodemus has learned. Remember, your good is not good enough. Don't, don't, don't think of love in categ- or, or God in terms of category of deserve or not deserve. Second lesson, Nicodemus, you got to quit looking at yourself. You got to quit doing, he loves me, he loves me not, based on what you see in the mirror. You got to just quit looking at yourself. In fact, Nicodemus, I'm about to teach you how to look beyond yourself to the Son of Man. So there's two problems with looking at ourselves. And we've hinted at them, but let's drive it home. The two problems are this the first problem is what I call performance based worth, which is how you're judged in your job which is how some of you feel judged by your parents or by your previous or by a church, is your, is your love, you look at yourself and say, well, I'm lovable because of my performance or I'm unlovable because of my performance, okay? So that's problem number one. Problem number two is this. We can also diminish God's holiness. And, and here's what I mean by that, okay? God is so pure and God is so holy but what we'll do, because we look at ourselves and our performance is that great, isn't that great, but we're still looking at ourselves, so we'll say, well, maybe nobody's perfect and God understands. Or we'll say, oh, well, God will just forgive me. Or what I did is not as bad as what they did, and so certainly I rank higher than them on the whole totem pole of who's worthy of God's love or not. And so we end up diminishing God's holiness. And what you and I have to understand about God's holiness is the same thing if you're going in for surgery that your surgeon understands about germs. When they cut a human body open in surgery, they want no germs in the operating room. God will have no germs in heaven. God will have no germ because he has perfect integrity. He can't allow that, right? If you've you've ever become a parent 
and you suddenly become a parent and you fall in love with Purell, right? Because you're trying to protect your precious baby from germs, right? God's holy, right? So any attempt to diminish his holiness at the expense of our sinfulness gets us off course with God. So those are the two problems that come when we look at our performance. We look at it and say, hey, I'm good enough. Or we look at it and say, hey, God's not as holy as maybe uh, the Bible says or maybe as he really is. So if we're not going to look at ourselves, what do we do? And Jesus is going to answer that question. And to teach what to look at, he goes back to a story from the Old Testament. John 3, 14. He says, just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up. So he says, look, the Son of Man is like the snake that was lifted up in the wilderness. And so we ask this question, well, what's he talking about? So we go back to Numbers chapter 21, and starting in around verse 5, something happened. And this is where Jesus is drawing his, his illustration from. He says, okay, so the, spe- the people spoke against God and Moses, so they sinned against God and Moses. And then, the, so the Lord sent poisonous snakes among the people, and they bit them so that many Israelites died. There is a consequence to sinning against a holy God. And if we have sin, it's like germs to God. And we kill germs, and God, sin causes death. So there's judgment and poisonous snakes that come in. So the people come to Moses, and they say, Okay, Moses, we have sinned. We agree. Uh, against, we've sinned against God and against you. So intercede with the Lord so that he'll take away the snakes from us. So Moses intercedes or prays for the people. And then the Lord says to Moses, he says, Make a snake. And this is what Jesus is talking about. Make a snake image and mount it up on a pole. And when anyone who is bitten looks at it, he will recover. So they're sick, they're bitten, they're infected, they're dying. And Moses makes a snake and he says, if you look to the snake and see the snake as the antidote, if you see the snake as the anti-venom, if you see the snake as your salvation, as your way out of your sin problem, your judgment problem, you'll be okay. So Moses makes a bronze snake. He mounts it on a pole, and whenever someone was bitten, he looked at the bronze snake, and he does what? He got better. He was restored. He recovered, okay? So there's a lesson here that God is teaching us as he's teaching us about something very important, okay? And the lesson of the snake is this. We need to recognize first what the real threat and the real problem is. A lot of us would say our real problem is I'm not married yet. Or our real problem is someone I love is sick. Or our real problem is related to our finances or our bank account. When we look at the story of the snake, we have to understand our real problem is that sin really does have a penalty. Sin really does have a consequence. Sin really does infect every part of our body and our lives. And so our greatest problem is the judgment and anger or judgment and the wrath of God. A lot of people don't see that. And if you don't understand that, we'll, have, we'll really struggle, okay? So that our real threat and our real problem is judgment and wrath from God because of God's holiness and our sinful rebellion against Him, okay? Now, that invites a question that we got in before the sermon series began, and I just want to look at this question, okay? So someone asked, in relation to this, someone asked this question, well, what's the point of actually following God or practicing Christianity if my life won't get better or worse because of it? 
Christians still have bad stuff happen to them, and life doesn't magically get better when you start following Jesus. And I'm not doing too bad right now, so I don't need anything to make life better. Great question. So I appreciate the transparency that we can have, and I appreciate you asking that question vulnerably. And I'm going to answer the question with two words. The words are temporary and treasure. Okay? Temporary and treasure. This question assumes that life is that the life we get on earth is the only life we have. And it assumes that everything on earth, the goal of religion is to make life in our 90 years or 100 years, use round numbers, to make life better during those 100 years. That's the assumption behind the question. We're built for eternity. We're eternal beings. And so when you leave out eternity, you start to judge things incorrectly. So, for example, if I'm going skydiving and I jump out of an airplane and I'm having a blast for however far I'm going to free fall, but when it comes time to pull my parachute, let's say I pull my parachute and it doesn't work. A nanosecond before, I was having the time of my life. A nanosecond later, now I'm scared to death because I'm about to face death. A lot of us go through life like the skydiver who doesn't know his parachute doesn't work. It's all fun until it doesn't open when our greatest problem would be facing eternity without God. Temporary. Second word I would use to answer this question is treasure. When you really understand God, He becomes your greatest good. He becomes your greatest joy. He becomes your treasure over and above anything this life has to offer. Okay? So, our greatest problem is the judgment and wrath of God that we rightly and justly deserve. The second lesson of the snake is this. When the people of Israel were bitten by the snake and they caused it, they invited it, they brought it upon themselves because of their sin, because of their rejection of God's way, they realized they were helpless. They realized they were hopeless. Remember what God said to Nicodemus? You've got to be born again of the Spirit. God has to do something to you. You can't solve your way out of your problem. You can't give yourself hope that will solve your hopeless problem. So the second lesson for Nicodemus, or the lesson, rather the lesson of the snake is, you have to look to another. You have to look outside of yourself for the hope uh, to, that you need and the solution to the problem that you have. You must look to another. So, remember, remember, we look in the mirror and we play, well, he loves me because I. He loves me not because I. Suddenly, we've just shut the mirror down and said, you can't look in the mirror. You've got to look to another. Well, who do we look at, God? Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the Son of Man... Jesus must be lifted up so that everyone who believes in him may have eternal life. Now, look what he's done. He's defined looking and believing as the same. And how you look at the Son of Man determines is how you have to believe. You have to look at the Son of Man the same way the Israelites looked at the snake on the pole, as the antivenom, the antidote, the hope, the solution, the refuge, the Savior, the remedy to the problem. You ha this is not looking at Jesus as teacher. This is looking at Jesus as Savior, as King, as Lord, as God, meeting you in your problem. And then he says this, and this is the verse that many of us have heard, in light of everything, 
For God loved. Now, have we been talking about love? Indirectly, he's coming back to it. For God loved the world in this way. This is the correct translation of John 3.16. However you learned it does not convey the meaning of the Greek correctly. God loves the world in a particular, specific way. And here's the way he loved the world. He gave his one and only son so that everyone who believes in him looks at him in this way. The way the Israelites in the desert or the wilderness looked at the snake as the antivenom, the antidote, the hope, the solution, the provider, etc. Will not perish or die or spend eternity apart from God, but rather have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Not to condemn the world for what we deserve or what we've done or not done, but to save the world through looking at him which defines faith as the gaze of the soul looking upon a saving God. That's faith. That's believing. That's looking. So now let's go back to where we're in the beginning. God loves me because. God loves me because. Because he met my greatest need, which was to escape his wrath and judgment. And he did that when Jesus was put on a pole like the snake in the wilderness and raised up on a hill called Golgotha to die in my place for my sins and my, and my shame and my guilt. And so now we get and see a definition of love. Love is giving people whatever they need most even if it costs a lot. What did the Israelites in the desert need most? Did they need water? Did they need shelter? They needed a solution to their sin problem that had brought judgment and wrath. See, this is where we miss up with God. We think what we need most is to be healed from cancer. We think what we need most is to have a new car or a better boyfriend. What we need most is a solution to our sin, judgment, and wrath problem. It's like my son. School night. Hey, Dad, can I stay up till midnight? He thinks it would be real loving if I let him. I think it'd be unloving. Our Father in Heaven's a better Father than I am. Your greatest problem, what you and I need most, is the anti-venom to our sin, judgment, and wrath problem. So what Jesus' lesson for us is this. We understand how God loves us so that we know that he loves us no matter what. He loves me because he died in my place. He loves me because he paid the penalty for my sin. He loves me because he took the wrath of God for me. He loves me because he's the propitiation, the atonement. He loves me because he paid the ransom. He loves me because he lived the perfect life and gives me credit. He loves me because he was lifted up for me. And the love game and the love guessing is over. Because he wants us to understand how he loves us. So that we know that he loves us no matter what. So our lesson is this. We unhitch love from our worthiness and life circumstances. And instead, we anchor love to Christ and his cross.
We don't judge God's love by likes on Facebook, by whether our day was good or not, by how we feel in a certain season. We judge love objectively, historically, that Christ was lifted up at Golgotha in our place to give us what we need most, even at great cost to himself. So I really think our great invitation today is to simply let God love us and look to Christ. Some of us don't let God love us because we're self-righteous and we're like, I didn't really need, I'm not that bad. I don't really need Jesus. So we don't look to Jesus and we think we're okay because we're looking at ourselves. That's false assurance. That's deceptive love. No one bitten by a poisonous snake would say, I don't need the antidote, the anti-venom. Conversely, some of us are looking at ourselves and we're like, I don't deserve it. I don't deserve it. Nobody deserves undeserving love. Yet it's available because he loves me because he was lifted up. He loves me because he paid the penalty. He loves me because he was the sacrifice. He loves me because he solves my sin, judgment, and wrath problem. We look to Christ, not ourselves. And all of our feeling unworthy is because we're not looking at Christ. We're looking in the mirror. Or all of our deceptions come because we look at ourselves rather than to Christ. With that, I'll be honored to take a couple of questions that you might have had on this very subject. All right, here we go. Let's see. Here's the question. All right, I just don't feel it. Others tell me about this feeling, but I've never had it. It's a great question. I actually preached someone's funeral, and they were a Christian, but they kept saying, I don't have the feeling. All right, it's great. We cannot base the love of God on a subjective thing as feelings. All right? We've had feelings that have been illegitimate. We've had, we, felt, we feared the boogie monster under the bed, right? When we were little kids, those feelings weren't based on truth. Uh, Satan can give feelings. I've ridden a roller coaster that gave me feelings. Feelings come and go. Your assurance of God's love does not become, is not necessarily because you feel it or not. Your assurance is because Jesus hung on a cross in your place. That's where love is defined. That's where love is born. That's where love is given. If you are looking to Christ, don't look to your feelings to confirm God's love. Always look to Christ. All right. Another question. What if I'm not straight? I assume that means uh, in the sexual connotation. God loves sinners, period. No matter what. Look to Christ. God loves sinners, period. And don't classify certain things as beyond the scope of God's love. God is Lord of our money, of our sexuality, of our bodies. God is Lord of our biology. God is Lord of all. And when we give ourselves to him, we give him all of those things. But we don't look at ourselves as unlovable because of anything. We look at the cross. We look at Christ. And when he says, back in John three sixteen, how did he say it? He says, God loved the world in this way so that everyone who believes in him Everyone. 
All right. Any other questions that you have? I'll take them on Facebook Live. You can keep texting them in. But here's my invitation right now. Undoubtedly, some of us walked here today and you've never looked at Jesus on the cross. You might have looked at your church attendance or your baptism. You might have looked at, I'm just not good. And you're, you have shame and guilt. If you look to the cross right now and understand the depth of Christ's love for you, and you define, you understand how much He loved you because of He met your greatest need at great cost to Himself. Christ wants to come in and be a part of your life. He wants the steering wheel of your life. He wants to be your life. So I, my invitation is, would you look to Christ right now? For those of you here today, the greatest thing you need is to understand the depth of God's love. That's shown. Christ on the cross. So we look to him. Would you pray with me? God, I thank you that you love everyone. And we can find no person on earth that we cannot say this to. God loves you no matter what. And I pray right now that you would give people a deeper awareness of your love for them. Maybe someone's here today, they've been Christian walking with you, God, for years. But they need today to be refreshed and rejuvenated by your love for them on the cross. God, maybe there's somebody here today and they walked in here today thinking they were beyond the scope or the reach or the touch of your love. God, they're not. May they look to Christ. And God, it is your undeniable, unconditional love that invites us to give you the steering wheel of our lives, that invites us to surrender to you, to love you back in obedience and faith. And it's based on joy, not guilt. It's based on love, not duty. It is based on the fact that you loved us first when we were unlovable in a hopeless and helpless situation, objects of your judgment and wrath because of our sin. God, right now, in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, would you pour your Spirit out and shed your love into our hearts so that we are, leave here today with certainty that you, God, Love us as we look to Christ in whose name we pray.